Section 7 of Inquiry into Human Faculty and Its Development by Francis Galton. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Leon Harvey. Chapter 24. Nurture and Nature. Man is so educable, an animal, that it is difficult to distinguish between that part of his character which has been acquired through education and circumstance and that which was the original grain of his constitution. His character is exceedingly complex, even in members of the simplest and purest savage race, much more is it so in civilized races, who have long since been exempted from the full vigor of natural selection, and have become more mongrel in their breed than any other animal on the face of the earth. Different aspects of the multiferous character of man respond to different causes from without so that the same individual, and much more the same race, may behave very differently at different epochs. There may have been no fundamental change of character, but a different phase or mood of it may have been evoked by special circumstances, or those persons in whom that mood is naturally dominant may, through some accident, have the opportunity of acting for the time as representatives of the race. The same nation may be seized by a military fervour at one period, and by a commercial one at another. They may be humbly submissive to a monarch, or become outrageous republicans. The love of art, gaiety, adventure, science, religion, may be severely paramount at different times. One of the most notable changes that can come over a nation is from a state corresponding to that of our dark past ages into one like that of the Renaissance. In the first case, the minds of men are wholly taken up with routine work, and in copying what their predecessors have done, they degrade into servile imitators and submissive slaves to the past. In the second case, some circumstances or idea has finally discredited the authorities that impelled intellectual growth, and has unexpectedly revealed new possibilities. Then the mind of the nation is set free, a direction of research is given to it, and all the exploratory and hunting instincts are awakened. These sudden errors of great intellectual progress cannot be due to any alteration in the natural faculties of the race, because there has not been time for that, but to their being directed in productive channels. Most of the leisure of the men of every nation is spent in rounds of reiterated actions. If it could be spent in continuous advance along new lines of research in unexplored regions, vast progress would be sure to be made. It has been the privilege of this generation to have had fresh fields of research pointed out to them by Darwin, and to have undergone a new intellectual birth by the inspiration of his fertile genius. A pure love of change, acting according to some law of contrast as yet imperfectly understood, especially characterizes civilized man. After a long continuance of one mood, he wants to throw himself into another, the pleasure of setting faculties into action that have been long disused, but not yet paralyzed by disuse, and which have been fidgety for employment. He has so many opportunities for procuring change, and is so complex in nature that he easily learns to neglect a more deeply seated feeling that innovation is wicked and which is manifest in children and barbarians. To a civilized man, the varied interests of civilization are temptations in as many directions. Changes in dress and applications of all kinds are comparatively inexpensive to him owing to the cheapness of manufactures and their variety. Change of scene is easy from the conveniences of locomotion. But a barbarian has none of these facilities. His interests are few. His dress, as it is, is intended to stand the wear and tear of years, and all weathers. It is relatively very costly, and is an investment 
one may say, of his capital rather than his income. The invention of his people is sluggish, and their arts are few. Consequently, he is perforce taught to be conservative. His ideas are fixed, and he becomes scandalized even at the suggestion of change. The difficulty of indulging in variety is incomparably greater among the rest of the animal world. If a peahen should take it into her head that bars would be prettier than eyes in the tail of her spouse, she could not possibly get what she wanted. It would require hundreds of generations which the peahens generally concurred in the same view before sexual selection would effect the desired alteration. The feminine delight of indulging her caprice in matters of ornament is a luxury denied to the females of the brute world, and the law that rules changes in taste, if studied at all, can only be ascertained by observing the alterations of fashion in civilized communities. There are long sequences of changes in character, which, like the tunes of a musical snuff-box, are regulated by internal mechanism. They are such as those of Shakespeare's seven ages, and others due to the progress of various diseases. The lives of birds are characterized by long chains of these periodic sequences. They are mostly mute in winter. After that, they begin to sing. Some species are seized in the early part of the year with so strong a passion for migrating that if confined in a cage they will beat themselves to death against its bars, then follow courtship and pairing, accompanied by the excess of ferocity among the males and severe fighting for the females. Next an impulse seizes them to build nests, then a desire for incubation, then one for the feeding of their young. After this is a newly arisen tenacity, to gregariousness groups them into large flocks, and finally they fly away into the place whence they came, goaded by similar instinct to that which drove them forth a few months previously. These remarkable changes are mainly due to the conditions of their natures, because they persist with more or less regularity under altered circumstances. Nevertheless, they are not wholly independent of circumstance because the period of migration, though nearly coincident in successive years, is modified to some small extent by the weather and condition of the particular year. The interaction of nature and circumstance is very close, and it is impossible to separate them with precision. Nurture acts before birth, during every stage of embryonic and pre-embryonic existence, causing the potential faculties at the time of birth to be in some degree the effect of nurture. We need not, however, be hypocritical about distinctions. We know the bulk of the respective provinces of nature and nurture are totally different, although the frontier between them may be uncertain, and we are perfectly justified in attempting to appraise their relative importance. I shall begin with describing some of the principal influences that may safely be ascribed to education or other circumstances, all of which I include under the comprehensive term of nurture. Chapter 25. Associations The furniture of a man's mind chiefly consists of his recollections and the bonds that unite them. As all this is the fruit of experience, it must differ greatly in different minds according to their individual experiences. I have endeavoured to take stock of my own mental furniture in the way described in the next chapter, in which will be seen how large a part consists of childish recollections, testifying to the permanent effect of many of the results of early education. The same fact has been strongly brought out by the replies from correspondents whom I had questioned on their mental imagery. It was frequently stated that the mental image invariably evoked by certain words was some event of childish experience or fancy. Thus one correspondent of no mean literary and philosophical power recollects a left hand by a mental reference to the rocking horse which always stood by the side of the nursery wall with his head in the same direction and had to be mounted from the side next to the wall. 
another a politician historian and scholar refers all his dates to the mental image of a nursery diagram of the history of the world which has since developed huge bosses to support his later acquired information our abstract ideas being mostly drawn from external experiences their character also must depend upon the events of our individual histories for example the spoken words house and home must awaken ideas derived from the houses and the homes with which the hearer is in one way or other acquainted and these could not be the same to persons of various social positions and places of residence the character of our abstract ideas therefore depends to a considerable degree on our nurture i doubt however whether abstract idea is a correct phrase in many of the cases in which it is used and whether cumulative idea would not be more appropriate the ideal faces obtained by the method of composite portraiture appear to have a great deal in common with the so-called abstract ideas the composite portraits consist as was explained of numerous superimposed pictures forming a cumulative result in which the features that are common to all the likenesses are clearly seen those that are common to a few are relatively faint and are more or less overlooked while those that are peculiar to single individuals leave no sensible trace at all this analogy which i pointed out in a memoir on generic images has been extended and confirmed by subsequent experience of the process one objection to my view was that our so-called generalizations are commonly no more representative cases our recollections being apt to be unduly influenced by particular events and not by the totality of what we have seen that the reason why some one recollection has prevailed is that the case was sharply defined or had something unusual about it or that our frame of mind was at the same time of observation susceptible to that particular kind of impression i have had exactly the same difficulties with the composites if one of the individual portraits has sharp outlines or if it is unlike the rest or if the illumination is temporarily strong it will assert itself unduly in the result the cases seem to me exactly analogous. i get over my photographic difficulty very easily by throwing the sharp portrait a little out of focus by eliminating such portraits as have exceptional features and by turning down the illumination to a standard intensity chapter twenty six psychometric experiments when we attempt to trace the first steps in each operation of our lines we are usually balked by the difficulty of keeping watch without embarrassing the freedom of its action the difficulty is much more than the common and well-known one of tending to two things at once it is especially due to the fact that the elementary operations of the mind are exceedingly faint and evanescent and that it requires the utmost painstaking to watch them properly it would seem impossible to give the required attention to the processes of thought yet to think as freely as if the mind had been in no way preoccupied the peculiarity of the experiments i am about to describe is that i have succeeded in evading this difficulty my method consists in allowing the mind to play briefly for a very brief period till a couple or so of ideas have passed through it and then while the traces or echoes of those ideas are still lingering in the brain to turn the attention upon them with a sudden and complete awakening to arrest to scrutinize them and to record their exact appearance afterwards i collect the records at leisure and discuss them and draw conclusions it must be understood that the second of the two ideas was never derived from the first but always directly from the original object this was ensured by absolutely withstanding all temptation to every i do not mean that the first idea was of necessity a simple elementary thought sometimes it was a glance down a familiar line of associations 
Sometimes it was a well-remembered mental attitude or mode of feeling, but I mean that I was never so far indulged in as to displace the object that had suggested it from being the primary topic of attention. I must add that I found the experiments to be extremely trying and irksome, and that it required much resolution to go through with them, using the scrupulous care they demanded. Nevertheless, the results well repaid the trouble. They gave me an interesting and unexpected view of the number of the operations of the mind, and of the obscure depths in which they took place, of which I had been little conscious before. The general impression they have left upon me is like that which many of us have experienced when the basement of our house happens to be under thorough sanitary repairs, and we realise that the first time the complex system of drains and gas and water pipes, flues, bell wires and so forth, upon which our comfort depends, but which are usually hidden out of sight, and with whose existence so long as they acted well, we had never troubled ourselves. The first experiments I made were imperfect, but sufficient to inspire me with keen interest in the matter, and suggested the form of procedure that I have already partially described. My first experiments were these. On several occasions, but notably on one when I felt myself unusually capable of the kind of effort required, I walked leisurely along Paul Moore, a distance of 450 yards, during which time I scrutinised with attention every successive object that caught my eyes, and I allowed my attention to rest on it until one or two thoughts had arisen through direct association with that object. Then I took very brief mental note of them, and passed on to the next object. I never allowed my mind to ramble. The number of objects viewed was, I think, about 300, for I had subsequently repeated the same walk under similar conditions and endeavoured to estimate their number. With that result, it was impossible for me to recall, in other than the vaguest way, the numerous ideas that had passed through my mind. But of this, at least, I am sure, that samples of my whole life had passed before me, that many bygone incidents, which I never suspected to have formed part of my stock of thoughts, had been glanced at as objects too familiar to awaken the attention. I saw at once that the brain was vastly more active than I had previously believed it to be, and twelve, and I was perfectly amazed at the unexpected width of the field of its everyday operations. After an interval of some days during which I kept my mind from dwelling on my first experiences, in order that it might retain as much freshness as possible for a second experiment, I repeated the walk, and was struck just as much as before by the variety of the ideas that presented themselves, and the number of events to which they referred, about which I had never consciously occupied myself of late years but my attention at the activity of the mind was seriously diminished by another observation which I then made, namely, that there had been a very great deal of repetition of thought. The actors in my mental stage were indeed very numerous, but by no means so numerous as I had imagined. They now seemed to be something like the actors in theatres where large processions are represented, who march off one side of the stage, and, going round by the back, come on again to the other. I accordingly cast about for means of laying hold of these fleeting thoughts, and submitted them to statistical analysis to find out more about their tendency to repetition in other matters, and the method I finally adopted was the one already mentioned. I selected a list of suitable words and wrote them on different small sheets of paper, taking care to dismiss them from my thoughts when not engaged upon them, and allowing some days to elapse before I began to use them. I laid one of the sheets with all due precautions under a book, but not wholly covered by it, so that, when I leaned forward, I could see one of the words, being previously quite ignorant of what the word would be. 
Also, I held a small chronograph, which I started by pressing a spring the moment the word caught my eye, and which stopped of itself the instant I released the spring, and this I did so soon as about a couple of ideas in direct association with the word had arisen in my mind. I found that I could not manage to recollect more than two ideas with the needed precision, at least not in a general way, but sometimes several ideas occurred so nearly together that I was able to record three or even four of them, while sometimes I only managed one. The second ideas were, as I have already said, never derived from the first, but always direct from the word itself. For I kept my attention firmly fixed on the word, and the associated ideas were seen only by a half glance. When the two ideas had occurred, I stopped the chronograph and wrote them down, and the time they occupied. I soon got in the way of doing all of this in a very methodical and automatic manner, keeping the mind perfectly calm and neutral, but intent, and, as it were, at full clock and on hair trigger, before displaying a word. There was no disturbance occasioned by thinking of the forthcoming revulsion of the mind the moment before the chronograph was stopped. My feeling before stopping, it was simply that I had delayed long enough, and this in no way interfered with the free action of the mind. I found no trouble in ensuring the complete fairness of the experiment, but using a number of little precautions hardly necessary to describe, that practice quickly suggested, but it was a most repugnant and laborious work, and it was only by strong self-control that I went through my schedule according to program. The list of words that I finally secured was seventy-five in number, though I began with more. I went through them in four separate occasions under very different circumstances, in England and abroad, and at intervals of about a month. In no case were the associations governed to any degree worth recording by remembering what had occurred to me on previous occasions, for I found that the process itself had great influence in discharging the memory of what it had just been engaged in, and I of course took care between the experiments never to let my thoughts revert to the words. The results seemed to me to be as trustworthy as any other statistical series that had been collected with equal care. On throwing these results into a common statistical hotchpot, I first examined into the rate at which these associated ideas were formed. It took a total time of 660 seconds to form the 505 ideas, that is, at about the rate of 50 a minute, or 3,000 in an hour. This would be miserably slow work in reverie, or wherever the thought follows the lead of each association that successfully presents itself. In the present case, much time was lost in mentally taking the word in, owing to the quite unobtrusive way in which I found it necessary to bring it into view, so as not to distract the thoughts. Moreover, a substantive standing by itself is usually the equivalent of too abstract an idea for us to conceive properly without delay. Thus, it is very difficult to get a quick conception of the word carriage, because there are so many different kinds, two-wheeled, four-wheeled, open and closed, and all of them in so many different possible positions that the mind possibly hesitates amidst an obscure sense of many alternatives that cannot blend together. But limit the idea to say a laudau, and the mental association declares itself more quickly. Say a laudau coming down the street to opposite the door, and an image of many blended laudaus that have done so forms itself without the least hesitation. Next I found that my list of seventy-five words gone over four times had given rise to ideas and thirteen cases of puzzle, in which nothing sufficiently definite to note occurred within the brief maximum period of about four seconds, that I allowed myself to any single trial. Of these five hundred five, only two hundred eighty-nine were different. The precise proportions in which the five hundred five were distributed in quadruplets, triplets, doublets, or singles, 
is shown in the uppermost lines of Table 1. The same facts are given under another form in the lower lines of the table, which show how the 289 different ideas were distributed in cases of fourfold, treble, double, or single occurrences. Table 1 is displayed on a page, titled Recurrent Associations. I was fully prepared to find much iteration in my ideas, but I had little expected that out of every hundred words, 23 would give rise to exactly the same association in every one of the four trials, 21 to the same association in three out of the four, and so on. The experiments having been purposely conducted under very different conditions of time and local circumstances, this shows much less variety in the mental stock of the ideas than I had expected, and makes us feel that the roadways of our minds are worn into very deep ruts. I conclude from the proved number of faint and barely conscious thoughts and from the proved iteration of them that the mind is perpetually travelling over familiar ways without our memory retaining any impression of its excursions. Its footsteps are so light and fleeting that it is only by such experiments that I have described that we can learn anything about them. It is apparently always engaged in mumbling over its old stores, and if any one of these is wholly neglected for a while, it is apt to be forgotten, perhaps irrecoverably. It is by no means the keenness of interest, and of the attention when first observing an object, that fixes it in the recollection. We pore over the pages of a Bradshaw, and study the trains for some particular journey with the greatest interest. But the event passes by, and the hours and other facts which we once so eagerly considered become absolutely forgotten. So in games of whist, and in a large number of similar instances, as I understand it, the subject may have a continued living interest in order to retain an abiding place in the memory. The mind must refer to it frequently, but whether it does so consciously or unconsciously is not perhaps a matter of much importance. Otherwise, as a general rule, the recollection sinks, and appears to be utterly drowned in the waters of Leth. The instances, according to my personal experience, are very rare, even those are not very satisfactory, in which some event recalls a memory that had lain absolutely dormant for many years. In this very series of experiments, a recollection which I thought had entirely lapsed appeared under no less than three different aspects of different occasions. It was this, when I was a boy, my father, who was anxious that I should learn something of physical science, which was then never taught at school, arranged with the owner of a large chemist shop to let me dabble at chemistry for a few days in his laboratory. I had not thought of this fact, so far as I was aware, for many years, but in scrutinising the fleeting associations called up by the various words, I traced two mental visual images, an alembic and a particular arrangement of tables and light, and one mental sense of smell, chlorine gas, to that very laboratory. I recognise that these images appear familiar to me, but I had not thought of their origin. I doubt if some strange conjunction of circumstances had suddenly recalled those three associations at the same time, with perhaps two or three other collateral matters, which may be still living in my memory, but which I do not as yet identify, a mental perception of startling vividness would be the result, and I should have falsely imagined that it had supernaturally, as it were, started into life from an entire oblivion extending over many years. Probably many persons would have registered such a case as evidence that things once perceived can never wholly vanish from the recollection, but that in the hour of death or under some excitement, every event of a past life may reappear. To this view I entirely dissent. Forgetfulness appears absolute in the vast majority of cases, and I suppose recollections of a past life are, I believe, no more than a large number of episodes in it, 
to be reckoned perhaps in hundreds of thousands but certainly not intensive hundreds of thousands that have escaped oblivion every one of the fleeting half-conscious thoughts that were the subject of my experiments admitted of being vivified by keen attention or by some appropriate association but i strongly suspect that ideas which have long since ceased to fleet through the brain owing to the absence of current associations to call them up disappear wholly a comparison of old memories with a newly met friend of one's boyhood about the events we then witnessed together show how much we had each of us forgotten our recollections do not tally actors and incidents that seem to have been of primary importance in those events to the one have been utterly forgotten by the other the recollection of our earlier years are in truth very scanty as any of them will find who tries to enumerate them my associated ideas were for the most part due to my own unshed experiences and the list of them would necessarily differ widely from that which another person would draw up who might repeat my experiments therefore one sees clearly and i may say one can see measurably how impossible it is in a general way for two grown-up persons to lay their minds side by side together in perfect accord the same sentence cannot produce precisely the same effect on both and the first quick impressions that any given word in it may convey will differ widely in the two minds i took pains to determine as far as feasible the dates in my life at which each of the associated ideas was first attached to the word there were one hundred twenty four cases in which identification was satisfactory and they were distributed as in table two table two is displayed on the page relative number of associations formed at different periods of life it will be seen from the table that out of the forty-eight earliest associations no less than twelve or one quarter of them occurred in each of the four trials of the associations first formed in manhood ten or about one-sixth of them had a similar recurrence but as to the nineteen other associations first formed in quite recent times not one of them occurred in the whole of the four trials hence we may see the greater fixity of the earlier associations and might measurably determine the decrease of fixity as the date of their first formation becomes less remote the largeness of the number thirty-three in the middle entry of the last column but one which disconcerts the run of the series is wholly due to a visual memory of places seen in manhood i will not speak about this now as i shall have to refer to it farther on neglecting for the moment this unique class of occurrences it will be seen that one half of the associations date from the period of life before leaving college it may easily be imagined that many of these refer to common events in an english education nay further on looking through the list of all the associations it was easy to see how they are pervaded by purely english ideas and especially such are the prevalent in the stratum of english society in which i was born and bred and have subsequently lived in illustration of this i may mention an anecdote of a matter which greatly impressed me at the time i was staying in a country house with a very pleasant party of young and old including persons whose education and versatility was certainly not below the social average one evening we played at a round game which consists in each of us drawing us absurd a scrawl as he or she could representing some historical event the pictures were then shuffled and passed successively from hand to hand every one writing down independently their interpretation of the picture as to what the historical event was that the artist intended to depict by the scrawl i was astonished at the sameness of our ideas cases like cannon in the waves the babes in the tower and the like were drawn by two and even three persons at the same time quite independently of one another showing how narrowly we are bound by the fetters of our early education 
if the figures in the above table may be accepted as fairly correct for the world generally it shows still in a measurable degree the large effect of early education in fixing our associations it will of course be understood that i make no absurd profession of being able by these very few experiments to lay down statistical constants of universal application but that my principal object is to show that a large class of mental phenomena that have hitherto been too vague to lay hold of a met have been caught by the firm grip of genuine statistical inquiry the results that i have thus far given are hotchpotch results it is necessary to sort the materials somewhat before saying more about them after several trials i found that the associated ideas admitted of being divided into three main groups first there is the imagined sound of words as in verbal quotations or names of persons this was frequently a mere parrot-like memory which acted instantaneously in a meaningless way just as a machine might act in the next group there was every other kind of sense imagery the chime of imagined bells the shiver of remembered cold the scent of some particular locality and much more frequently than all the rest put together visual memory the last part of the three groups contained what i will venture for the want of a better name to call histrionic representations it includes those cases where i either act a part in imagination or see in imagination a part acted or most commonly by far where i am both spectator and all the actors at once in an imaginary mental theatre thus i feel a nascent sense of some muscular action while i simultaneously witness a part of my brain a part of myself perform that action and i assume a mental attitude appropriate to the occasion this in my case is a very frequent way of generalizing indeed i rarely feel that i have secure hold of a general idea until i have translated somehow into this form thus the word abasement presented itself to me in one of my experiments by my mentally placing myself in a pantomimic attitude of humiliation with half-closed eyes bowed head and uplifted palms while at the same time i was aware of myself as of a mental puppet in that position this same word will serve to illustrate the other groups also it also happened in connection with abasement that the word david or king david occurred to me on one occasion in each of the three out of the four trials also that an accidental misreading or perhaps the merely puning association of the words abasement brought up all four occasions the image of the foundations of a house that the builders had become upon so much for the character of the association next as to that of the words i found after the experiments were over that the words were divisible into three distinct groups the first contained abbey aborigines abyss and others that admitted of being presented under some mental image the second group contained abasement abhorrence ablution etc which admitted excellently of histronic representation the third group contained the more abstract words such as afternoon ability abnormal which were variously and imperfectly dealt with by my mind i give the results in the upper part of table three and in order to save trouble i have reduced them to percentages in the lower lines of the table table three is displayed on the page comparison between the quality of the words and that of ideas in immediate association with them we see from the associations of the abbey series are nearly half of them in sense imagery and these were almost always visual the names of persons also more frequently occurred in this series than in any other it will be recollected that in table two i drew attention to the exceptionally large number thirty-three in the last column it was perhaps twenty in excess of what would have been expected from the general run of the other figures this was wholly due to visual imagery of scenes which i was first acquainted after reaching manhood 
and shows i think that the scenes of childhood and youth though vividly impressed on the memory are by no means numerous and may be quite thrown into the background by the abundance of after experiences but this as we have seen is not the case with the other forms of association verbal memories of old date such as biblical scraps family expressions bits of poetry and the like are very numerous and rise to the thoughts so quickly whenever anything suggests them that they commonly outstrip all competitors associations connected with the abasement series are strongly characterized by histronic ideas and by sense imagery which to a great degree merges into a histronic character thus the word abhorrence suggested to me on three out of the four trials an image of the attitude of martha in the famous picture of the raising of lazarus by sebastian del piombo in the national gallery she stands with averted head doubly sheltering her face by her hands from even a sidelong view of the open grave now i could not be sure how far i saw the picture as such in my mental view or how far i had thrown my own personality into the picture and was acting it as actors might act a mystery play by the puppets of my own brain that were part of myself as a matter of fact i entered it upon the heading of sense imagery but it might very properly have gone to swell the number of this tronic entries the afternoon series suggested a great preponderance of mere catchwords showing how slowly i was able to realize the meaning of abstractions the phrases intruded themselves before the thoughts became defined it occasionally occurred that i puzzled wholly over word and made no entry at all in thirteen cases either this happened or else after one idea had occurred the second was too confused and obscure to omit a record and mention of it had to be omitted in the foregoing table these entries have forcibly shown to me the great imperfection in my generalizing powers i am sure that most persons would find the same if they made similar trials nothing is a surer sign of high intellectual capacity than the power of quickly seizing and easily manipulating ideas of a very abstract nature commonly we grasp them very imperfectly and cling to their skirts with great difficulty in comparing the order in which the ideas presented themselves i find that a decided precedence is assumed by histronic ideas wherever they occur that verbal associations occur first and with great quickness on many occasions but on the whole they are only a little more likely to be occur in the second and that imagery is decidedly more likely to be the second and the first of the associations called up by a word in short gesture language appeals to most quickly to my feelings it would be very instructive to print the actual records of length made by many experimenters if the records could be clubbed together and thrown into a statistical form but it would be too absurd to print one's own singly they lay bare the foundations of a man's thoughts with curious distinctness and exhibit his mental anatomy with more vividness and truth than he would probably care to publish to the world it remains to summarize what has been said in the foregoing memoir i decide to show how whole strata of mental operations that have lapsed out of ordinary consciousness admit of being dragged into light recorded and treated statistically and how the obscurity that attends the initial steps of our thoughts can thus be pierced and dissipated then i showed measurably the rate at which associations sprung up their character the date of their first formation their tendency to recurrence and their relative precedence also i gave an instance showing how the phenomenon of a long-forgotten scene suddenly starting into consciousness omitted in many cases of being explained perhaps the strongest of the impressions left by these experiments regards the multifariousness of the work done by the mind in a state of half unconsciousness and the valid reason they afford for believing in the existence of still greater strata of mental operations sunk wholly below the level of consciousness which may account for such mental phenomena as cannot otherwise be explained 
we gain insight by these experiments into the marvellous number and nimbleness of our mental associations and we also learn that they are very far indeed from being infinite in their variety we find that our working stock of ideas is narrowly limited and that the mind continuously recurs to the same instruments in conducting its operations therefore its tracks necessarily become more defined and its flexibility diminished as age advances chapter twenty seven and a chamber of consciousness when i am engaged in trying to think anything out the process of doing so appears to me to be this the ideas that lie at any moment within my full consciousness seem to attract their own accord the most appropriate out of a number of other ideas that are lying close at hand but imperfectly within the range of my consciousness there seems to be a presence chamber in my mind where full consciousness holds court and where two or three ideas are at the same time in audience and at antechamber full of more or less allied ideas which is suited just beyond the full ken of consciousness out of this antechamber the ideas most nearly allied to those in the presence chamber appear to be summoned in a mechanical logical way and have their turn of audience a successful progress of thought appears to depend first on a large attendance in the antechamber secondly on the presence there of no ideas except such as are strictly germane to the topic under consideration thirdly on the justness of the logical mechanism that issues the summons the thronging of the antechamber is i am convinced altogether beyond my control if the ideas do not appear i cannot create them nor compel them to come the exclusion of alien ideas is accompanied by a sense of mental effort and volition whenever the topic under consideration is unattractive otherwise it proceeds automatically for if an intruding idea finds nothing to cling to it is unable to hold its place in the antechamber and slides back again an animal absorbed in a favourite occupation shows no sign of painful effort of attention on the contrary he represents interruption that solicits his attention elsewhere the consequence of all this is that the mind frequently does good work without the slightest exertion in composition it will often produce a better effect than if it acted with effort because the essence of good composition is that the idea should be connected by the easiest possible transitions when a man has been thinking hard and long upon a subject he becomes temporarily familiar with certain steps of thought certain shortcuts and certain fire-fetched associations that do not commend themselves to the minds of other persons nor indeed to his own at other times therefore it is better that his transitionary familiarity with them should have come to an end before he begins to write or speak when he returns to the work after a sufficient pause he is conscious that his ideas have settled that is they have lost their adventurous relations to one another and stand in those in which they are likely to reside permanently in his own mind and to exist in the minds of others although the brain is able to do very fair work fluently in an automatic way and though it will of its own accord strike out sudden happy ideas it is questionable if it is capable of working thoroughly and profoundly without past or present effort the character of this effort seems to me chiefly to lie in bringing the contents of the antechamber more nearly within the ken of consciousness which then takes comprehensive note of all its contents and compels the logical faculty to test them seriatim before selecting the fittest for a summons to the presence chamber extreme fluency and a vivid and rapid imagination are gifts naturally and healthily possessed by those who rise to be great orators or literary men for they could not have become successful in those careers without it the curious fact already alluded to of five editors of newspapers being known to me as having phantasmagoria points to a connection between two forms of fluency the literary and the visual fluency may be also a morbid faculty being markedly increased by alcohol 
as poets are never tired of telling us and by various drugs and it exists in delirium insanity and states of high emotions the fluency of a vulgar scold is extraordinary in preparing to write or speak upon a subject of which the details have been mastered i gather after some inquiry that the usual method among persons who have the gift of fluency is to think curiously on topics connected with it until what i have called the antechamber is well filled with cognate ideas then to allow the ideas to link themselves in their own way breaking the leakage continually and recommencing afresh until some line of thought has suggested itself that appears from a rapid and light glance to thread the chief topics together after this the connections are brought step by step fully into consciousness they are short-circuited here and extend there as found advisable until a firm connection is found to be established between all parts of the subject after this is done the mental effort is over and the composition may proceed fluently in an automatic way though this i believe is a usual way is by no means universal for there are very great differences in the connections under which different persons compose most readily they seem to afford as good evidence of the variety of mental and bodily constitutions as can be met within or any other line of inquiry it is reasonable to suggest that part at least of the inward responses to spiritual yearnings is of similar origins to the visions thoughts and phrases that arise automatically when the mind has prepared itself to receive them the devout man attunes his mind to holy ideas he excludes alien thoughts and he waits in what is in stillness gradually the darkness is lifted the silence of the mind is broken and the spiritual responses are heard in the way so often described by devout men of all religions this seems to me precisely natalist to the automatic presentation of ordinary ideas to orators and literary men and to the visions of which i spoke in the chapter on that subject individuality replaces individuality and the portion of the mind communicates with another portion as with a different person some persons and races are naturally more imaginative than others and show their visionary tendency in every one of the respects named they are fanciful oratorical poetical incredulous the enthusiastic faculties all seem to hang together i shall recur to this in the chapter on enthusiasm i have already pointed out the existence of a morbid form of pity there is also a morbid condition of apparent inspiration to which imaginative women are subject especially those who suffer more or less from hysteria it is accompanied by a very curious way familiar to medical men by almost incredible acts of deceit it is found even in ladies of positions apparently above the suspicion of vulgar fraud and seems associated with the strange secret desire to attract notice ecstatics series of visions and devout fasting girls await on the sly often belong to this category chapter twenty eight early sentiments the child is passionately attached to his home then to his school his country and religion yet how entirely the particular home school country and religion are a matter of accident he is born prepared to attach himself as a climbing plant is naturally disposed to climb the kind of stick being of little importance the models upon whom the child or boy forms himself are the boys or men whom he has been thrown amongst and whom some incidental cause he may have learned to love and respect the everyday utterances the likes and dislikes of his parents the social and caste feelings their religious persuasions are absorbed by him their views all those of his teachers become assimilated and made his own if a mixed marriage should have taken place and the father should die while the children are yet young and if a question arise between the executors of his will and the mother as to the religious education of the children application is made as a matter of course to the court of chancery who decide that the children shall be brought up as protestants or as catholics 
as the case may be, or the sons one way and the daughters the other, and they are, and usually remain so afterwards, when free to act for themselves. It is worthy of note that many of the deaf-mutes who are first taught to communicate freely with others after they had passed the periods of boyhood are asked about their religious feelings up to that time, are reported to tell the same story. They say that the meaning of the church service, whither they had accompanied their parents, and of the kneeling to pray, had been absolutely unintelligible, and a standing puzzle to them. The ritual touched no chord in their untaught natures that responded in unison. Very much of what we fondly look upon as a natural religious sentiment is purely traditional. The word religion may fairly be applied to any group of sentiments or persuasions that are strong enough to bind us to do that which we intellectually may acknowledge to be our duty, and the possession of some form of religion, in this larger sense of the word, is of the utmost importance to moral stability. The sentiments must be strong enough to make us ashamed at the mere thought of committing and distressing during the act of committing any untruth, or any uncharitable act, or of neglecting what we feel to be right in order to indulge in laziness or gratify some passing desire. So long as experience shows the religion to be competent to produce this effect, it seems reasonable to believe that the particular dogma is comparatively of little importance. But as a dogma or sentiments, whatever they be, if they are not naturally instinctive, must be ingrained in the character to produce their full effect. They should be instilled early in life and allowed to grow unshaken before their roots are firmly fixed. The consciousness of this fact makes the form of religious teaching in every church and creed identical in one important particular, though its substance may vary in every respect. In subjects unconnected with sentiment, the freest inquiry and the fullest deliberation are required before it is thought decorous to form a final opinion. But wherever sentiment is involved, and especially in questions of religious dogma, about which there is more sentiment and more difference of opinion among wise, virtuous, and truth-seeking men than about any other subject whatever, free inquiry is peremptorily discouraged. The religious instructor in every creed is one who makes it is his profession to saturate his pupils with prejudice. A vast and perpetual clamour rises from the pulpits of endless proselytising sects throughout the great empire the priests of all them crying with one consent this is our way shut your ears to the words of those who teach differently don't look at their books do not even mention their names except to scoff at them they are damnable have faith in what i tell you and save your souls in which of these conflicting doctrines are we to place our faith if we are not to hear all sides and to rely upon our own judgment in the end are we to understand that it is the duty of man to be credulous in accepting whatever the priest in whose neighbourhood he happens to reside may say? Is it to believe whatever his parents may have lovingly taught him? There are a vast number of foolish men and women in the world who marry and have children, and because they deal lovingly with their children does not at all follow that they can instruct them wisely. Or is it to have faith in what the wisest men of all ages have found peace in believing? The Catholic phrase, quod semter, quod ubic, Quod omnibus, that which has been believed at all times, in all places, and by all men, has indeed a fine rolling sound, but where is a dogma that satisfies its requirements? Or is it such and such really good and wise men with whom you are acquainted and whom it may be you have the privilege of knowing, have lived consistent lives through the guidance of these dogmas? How can you, who are many grades their inferior in good work, incapacity and inexperience, presume to set up your opinion against theirs. Their reply is that it is a matter of history and notoriety, 
that other very good capable and inexperienced men have led and are leading consistent lives under the guidance of totally different dogmas and that some of them a few generations back would have probably burned your modern hero as a heretic if he had lived in their times and could have got hold of him also that men however eminent in goodness intellect and experience may be deeply prejudiced and that their judgment in matters where their prejudices are involved cannot thenceforward be trusted watchers as electricians know their cost are liable to have their steelwork accidentally magnetized and the best chronometer under those conditions can never again be trusted to keep correct time lastly we are told to have faith in our conscience where well, we know now a great deal more about conscience than formerly ethnologists have studied the manifestations of conscience in different people and do not find that they are consistent conscience is now known to be partially transmitted by inheritance in the way and under the conditions clearly explained by mr darwin and partially to be an unsuspected result of early education the value of inherited conscience lies in it being the organized results of the social experiences of many generations but it fails in so far as it expresses the experience of generations whose habits differ from our own the doctrine of evolution shows that no race can be in perfect harmony with its surroundings the latter are continually changing while the organism of the race hobbles after vainly trying to overtake them therefore the inherited part of conscience cannot be an infallible guide and the acquired part of it may under the influence of dogma be a very bad one the history of fanaticism shows too clearly that this is not only a theory but a fact happy the child especially in these inquiring days who has been taught a religion that mainly rests on the moral obligations between man and man in domestic and national life and which so far as it is necessarily dogmatic rests chiefly upon the proper interpretation of facts about which there is no dispute namely on the habitual occurrences which are always open to observation and which form the basis of so-called natural religion it would be instructed to make a study of the working religion of good and able men of all nations in order to discover the real motives by which they were severely animated men i mean who have been tried by both prosperity university and had borne the test who while they led lives full of interest to themselves were beloved by their own family noted among those with whom they had business relations for their probity and conciliatory ways are honoured by a wider circle for their unselfish furtherance of the public good such men exist of many faiths and in many races another interesting and cognate inquiry would be into the motives that have sufficed to induce men who are leading happy lives to meet death willingly at a time when they were not particularly excited probably the number of instances to be found say among mussulmans who are firm believers in the joys of mohammed's paradise will not be more numerous than among the zulus who have no belief in any paradise at all but are influenced by martial honour and patriotism there is an oriental phrase as i have been told that the fear of the inevitable death is a european malady approach of terror at any object is quickly taught if it is taught consistently whether the terror be reasonable or not there are few more stupid creatures than fish but they notoriously soon learn to be frightened at any newly introduced method of capture say by an artificial fly which at first their comrades took greedily some one fish may have seen others caught and have learned to take fright at the fly whenever he saw it again he would betray his terror by some instinctive gesture which would be seen and understood by others and so instruction in distrusting the fly appears to spread all gregarious animals are extremely quick at learning terrors from one another it is a condition of their existence that they should do so as was explained at length in a previous chapter their safety lies in mutual intelligence and support 
when most of them are browsing and a few are always watching and at least signal of alarm the whole herd takes fright simultaneously gregarious animals are quickly alive to their mutual signals it is beautiful to watch great flocks of birds as they wheel in their flight and suddenly slow the flash of all their wings against the sky as they simultaneously and suddenly change their direction much of the tameness or wilderness of an animal's character is probably due to the placidity or to the frequent starts of alarm of the mother while she was rearing it i was greatly struck with some evidence i happened to meet with of the pervading atmosphere of alarm and suspicion in which the children of criminal parents are brought up and which in combination with their inherited disposition makes them on the opinion of many observers so different to other children the evidence of which i speak lay in the tone of letters sent by criminal parents to their children who were inmates of the princess mary village homes from which i had the opportunity thanks to the kindness of the superintendent mrs meredith of hearing and seeing extracts they were full of such phrases as mind you not say anything about this though the matters referred to were to all appearance unimportant the writings of dante on the horrible torments of the damned and the realistic pictures of the same subject in frescoes and other pictures of the same date showing the flames and the flesh hooks and the harrows indicate the transforming effect of those cruel times fifteen generations ago upon the disposition of men revenge and torture had been so commonly practised by rulers that they seemed to be appropriate tributes of every high authority and the artists of those days saw no incongruity in supposing that a supremely powerful master however beneficent he might be would make the freest use of them aversion is taught as easily as terror when the object of it is neutral and not especially attractive to an unprejudiced taste i can testify in my own person to the somewhat rapidly acquired and long retained fancies concerning the clean and unclean upon the jews and mussulmans lay such curious stress it was a result of my happening to spend a year in the east at an age when the brain is very receptive of new ideas and when i happened to be much impressed by the nobler aspects of mussulman civilization especially i may say with the manly conformity of their everyday practice to the creed which contrasts sharply with what we see among most europeans who profess extreme unworldliness and humiliation on one day of the week and act in a worldly and masterful manner during the remaining six although many years have passed since that time i still find the old feelings in existence for instance that of looking on the left hand as unclean it is difficult to an untravelled englishman who has not had an opportunity of throwing himself into the spirit of the east to credit the disgust and detestation that numerous everyday acts which appear perfectly harmless to his countrymen excite in many orientals to conclude the power of nature is very great in implanting sentiments of a religious nature of terror and of aversion and in giving a fallacious sense of their being natural instincts but it will be observed that the circumstances from which these influences proceed affect large classes simultaneously forming a kind of atmosphere in which every member of them passes his life they produce the cast of mind that distinguishes an englishman from a foreigner and one class of englishmen from another but they have little influence in creating the differences that exist between individuals of the same class end of chapter twenty eight end of section seven